Welcome to the Bob Siegel Show podcast on the Cross Global Media Radio Network. Visit cgmradio.com slash bob to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. And once again, this is Ryan Holland, the indefatigable voice you must arduously endure at the beginning of every single show, and most of the time at the end too, engaging in a hostile takeover, a coup of sorts, once again to the Bob Siegel Show as host, but have no fear, Bob Siegel is still here to defend his most coveted king of podcasting throne, at least that's what we've dubbed him here at the CGM Radio Network, Bob. Thanks once again for helping me to facilitate a successful coup d'etat of your own show, albeit fleeting yes. on my end. And Ryan, once again, thank you for hosting, but having the good graciousness to allow me to be a guest on my show. Well, I I'm, think this is unprecedented in radio. We're, I, we're really on to something here. We are, we are, but I am a kind and, and benevolent uh, podcasting network dictator, so Bob, it's just my good graces that I invite you on your own show, so uh, happy to do it once again, but... Would our Lord do less? Yeah, Woody, Woody, but, but let me say this. This time, this time, however, it is not just yours truly and the most eminent Bob Siegel solving the world's problems. Today, we also have a very special guest with us to have a, converse, have a conversation about his pretty unique view on God. And a man I even personally debated on the subject of God's existence in our Sunday school class, of all places. I know it's getting more bizarro by the second over here. Brian Nicholson, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, absolutely. So let me share with you guys kind of how this is going to go down. So uh, Brian has, and the reason why we wanted to ask him to come on the show is that Brian has a unique take on God that we're going to get into, and I'm going to simply let Bob and Brian talk it out. But just so the listeners understand what's going on here, I am in studio at CGM Radio's home base. Bob is in San Diego on Zoom, and Brian is in Houston on Zoom. Uh, neither are with me in studio, so that's why they're not sounding quite as clear as I am. So the truth is, from here on out, uh, I'm here simply to produce this thing that it actually was not a hostile takeover. So Bob, uh, from here on out, I'm going to hand it over to you and produce this bad boy and kick back and enjoy the conversation. Okay, well, first of all, Brian, it's a pleasure to meet you, and I appreciate anybody who's analytical and has an open mind, which you seem to have from our little bit of interaction and from things Ryan has told me. I have heard a little bit about your unique point of view from Ryan, but for those who were not in your Sunday school class and for my audience, could you tell us, my understanding is you have come to the belief, or at least close to the belief, that there is some kind of God, but at this point you would not identify him with any particular world religion. Is that a correct assessment? First of all, I want to make sure I'm not misrepresenting you, and then I'll ask you more about that. Sure. So when I debated Ryan, I was uh, at that time I was an agnostic, and uh, over the course of the past probably like six months or so, I've been having conversations with a friend of mine who's a Christian and he studied philosophy in college and he's brilliant. And I've kind of come to the position that um, I at least think there is some kind of creator God. And so at first I just wanted to say, okay, I guess that means I'm a deist. Uh, but 
somebody corrected me because apparently a deist is confident that God had no uh, subsequent involvement after creating the universe. But my position is more of kind of agnosticism on God's involvement. So I guess that's the uniqueness of my view. I think a lot of people that, you know, say, oh, I believe in God, but I'm not religious. I'm not a Christian or what have you. They at least believe in kind of the kind of the classical notion of God, um, you know, the God that listens to prayers that is involved in human affairs to some degree. And lately I've been finding finding myself leaning more towards that way, I guess, but still unsure one way or the other. I, I don't say God definitely isn't involved at all in human affairs, but I, I also, uh, at this stage, I'm not confident enough to say he certainly is. So, and, and that position I was told is called bare theism or philosophical theism. Philosophical theism to me sounds more sophisticated and cool. Yeah. So stick with so that one. So you, you're leaning a little the deist position, but you're academically honest enough to say that when they claim, like they like to put it, that God kind of wound up the universe like a watch and he sits back and watches it tick, but he's not involved. You're not close to that idea, but at the moment you're inclined one way, but you're not, you're not going to commit yourself because you don't know that's correct. Right. And the way it was presented to me is like a deist would have to be confident that even God didn't have, uh, or God doesn't have like interaction with, you know, like particles today, uh, even if like even very mild involvement. And that's not something I feel confident that I could, I could say. So yeah, that's kind of how I arrived at my current position. Now, what brought you even to the position you're at now? You said that you were an agnostic. I was an agnostic once myself. I had been an atheist. I became an agnostic. I find agnosticism a very intellectually honest position, a position of integrity. So I admire the, the true agnostic who says that he doesn't know. Because I think the wiser we are in life, the, the more, you know, the old saying, the more I learn, the more I realize how little I know. What right. brought you from atheist to agnostic? Tell us where that step came. Well, so I was never uh, an atheist, but I, I did go from agnostic to bare theist, what I am now. Oh, so uh, you, and, you're and, saying you started as an agnostic then? Well, so, I mean, to like rewind the tape all the way back, I mean, I became a Christian very early on, like 10 years old, kind of fell out of the faith uh, very briefly. Then in college, got introduced to William Lane Craig and and some very kind of basic level apologetics, um, watched pretty much all his debates and found him to be very persuasive. But I, I regrettably didn't really go out of my way to look at like the best arguments from the other side. And so Shortly after I graduated college, I started a blog where I started writing about like apologetic arguments. And then probably a year or two after I graduated, I I came to realize like I I don't really feel comfortable calling myself a Christian anymore. Um, and I'm not I'm not quite sure if I went from Christian to agnostic in like a linear linear fashion like that. Uh, I, there could have been you know. There could have been like a brief bout of theism before I became agnostic, but remained that way for a little while. And then kind of what brought me to bare theism, just having these conversations with my my philosopher friend, I realized that things like the contingency argument, uh, the fine tuning argument, these kind of arguments I found pretty persuasive. And I don't think they're 
really at risk of, of like being refuted one day. A lot of people that object to the fine tuning argument kind of seem to say something like, well, let's just hold out. You know, people used to think that biological life forms appeared designed, but then we determined later on that they evolved. So maybe something like that will be true of fine tuning. But there's so many different constants and variables that are fine tuned that it seems like a, a really pointless wish to try and, and make the case that, oh, one day it's all going to be wiped out. Like we, we don't we don't think evolution or tecton- like the science behind tectonic plates uh, or anything like that. Like we're, we don't worry that that science is just going to be one day eliminated. Uh, so I have that, that all being said, I have quite a lot of confidence in the fine tuning argument. And then the contingency argument, there's different versions of it, as I'm sure you're aware. But what I find pretty persuasive about that is like it, it doesn't seem susceptible to scientific disconfirmation, even in principle. Like Luke Barnes is a cosmologist uh, in Australia, and I really like the way he illustrated kind of the force of the contingency argument. He said, imagine one day uh, Albert Einstein's great, great, great granddaughter, Alberta, solves like the fundamental uh, equation on the whiteboard. And uh, based on this equation, we can derive like the values of everything else in our universe, like the values of the constants and, uh, and everything else. We could always still ask the question, like, why does a universe described by that equation exist in the first place? And so for me, it makes the most sense to, to say the reason that there should be any universe at all is because there's some kind of necessary foundation like God that explains all of dependent or contingent reality. So I know that's only two arguments, but those kind of led me to where I am now. Um, and I find the I find moral arguments fairly interesting. I actually am a moral realist, and maybe we can talk uh, about some reasons why and why I, I don't necessarily see a connection uh, between moral realism and God. But yeah, that's kind of how I got to got to be a bare theist. Yeah. So. Well, actually, my next question was going to go close to the moral argument. You've offered some really good reasons for going from agnostic to the belief. Or- or as you put it, close to the belief in, in some kind of God. If you were to start asking yourself what kind of God he is, without us jumping to the Bible and saying, well, the Bible says he's loving, because obviously you've had reasons, even after listening to William Lane Craig, for not calling yourself a Christian anymore. Philosophically, can you think of things we might look at to determine whether or not God is a loving God or what kind of personality this God might have? Yeah, that's a great question. And and lately I've been thinking about kind of the implications of fine-tuning and what that would really mean. Because initially I kind of perceived the fine-tuning argument as just kind of saying, okay, there's a cosmic designer, and then we can't really say much beyond that. But really, I think the fine-tuning argument should should lead you to say, why would a being design a universe hospitable towards life and structure and planets and everything like that? if there was absolutely like no concern about what kind of life would evolve. And so uh, like if I had to, if I were to argue that God is good, I think the fine tuning argument could actually lead me that way. As far as like other attributes that I think like we can discern just philosophically, maybe you could make the case that God is like all powerful. I'm not sure about all knowing or omnibenevolent or anything like that. So yeah, I, I, I am kind of, in the position now where I think you, you do kind of require some kind of revelation to 
to assess God's other attributes like that. But what are your thoughts on that? Do you think well, you can just... obviously we would need some kind of revelation if we're going to say Christianity and the Bible sure. is the way he revealed himself, but staying in the realm of philosophy and not getting to the extra revelations yet, if we're establishing or at least proto-establishing that this universe and its design needs to have some kind of designer, then part of the design is within the makeup of human beings as well. So we get back to the question, is God a good God? Is God a loving God? We have a conscience which tells us we should be good. Now, we don't live up to that conscience very well, which I think is one of the greatest hints that it finds origin in an entity outside of ourselves. Because if we were going to invent our own morals and standards, I would think we'd invent standards that we could live up to better. We have this conscience that tells us not to be selfish, and we're pretty darn selfish. Now, I'm not saying that we don't have different mores from society to society that people have invented. I, I understand that. That's obvious. But right. there seems to be something persuasive throughout that we should be treating fellow human beings with dignity and respect. Different cultures might have different understandings of what that means. But let me give you a chance to respond to that. That's where I might begin to say, okay, well, we can't be superior to whoever created us. And if, if we know that we should be good, if we know that we should treat human beings a certain way, then our creator certainly would know that. So let me, let me see what your response would be to that. I guess I just don't understand how, um, how it, how it seems improbable. And I think Ryan and I have actually talked about this before, but um, to me, it doesn't seem all that unlikely that like human beings would even assuming naturalism, like kind of evolve uh, cooperation and, uh, you know, would seek out mutual respect for one another because that's what they want themselves. Uh, and they see that, you know, if, if I deliver um, those kind of behaviors, like in my day-to-day life, people are more likely to reciprocate that. Um, so, yeah, I guess I like, I don't see how theism predicts kind of the current moral landscape any better than naturalism would. Um, but I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm off there. What do you think? Well, it's not, a, it's not so much starting with theism and going there, I, although I obviously can. We can choose our direction. I'm going the other direction. I'm starting with the fact that we have this conscience, and I'm asking where that conscience came from. Now, what you're suggesting, and I've heard this commonly, and it's commonly been called the Wolfpack theory, that what we're mistakenly calling an intuition to treat people with respect in mm-hmm. a loving and unselfish way even to the point of maybe sacrificing for somebody else. What we're mistakenly calling a, a value is just our instinct for survival. I think where that could break down is that often people will make convenient decisions at other people's expense, which means they are surviving or they, they are catering to their own survival instinct. And yet they're still experiencing pangs of guilt and conscience. So I would raise the question, where then is this conscience coming from? For example, if I was at the supermarket and I noticed they, they overchanged me $10 and gave me back $10 that, that isn't really mine. Right. And they didn't catch it. And I know they're not going to catch it till the end of the day when they total up the cash register and I pay it in cash. I'm never going to get caught, but I'm still going to feel guilty about that. Now, and, and I'm not, a lot of people would just say, oh, the heck would, and they would keep the $10. I'm not even saying what a person would choose to do, but whatever they choose to do, 
they aren't going to experience some guilt. Where would you say that guilt comes from? Well, I'm not, I'm not certain everyone would feel guilty. I, I agree that most people probably would, but I think the reason most people probably would is just because they've been conditioned that way. And, um, people, the rare few that wouldn't feel guilty, um, may also have been conditioned that way, or they could be like a, you know, clinically diagnosed psychopath and lack empathy. Well, yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned psychopath because we have that, that diagnosis by definition means that their conscience isn't working correctly, but that presumes there is such a thing as a conscience uh, that, that actually works. Now I agree that somebody could say, well, maybe I'm only feeling this guilt because I'm conditioned this way. But the moment a person realizes that they've been brainwashed, I know you didn't use the word brainwashing yourself just now, but I'll put that term in, in a sense, there's really no right. There's really no wrong. I've been conditioned. I've been brainwashed into thinking there is the moment a person knows he's been brainwashed, he's not brainwashed anymore. So let me just ask you yourself, would you feel obligated to go give that money back, even though you're aware that others might not? Yeah, I I would feel obligated. And now why would, why would you, you strike me as a, you strike me as a person of high conscience. And I mean that as a sincere compliment. And you also strike me as a person who's very intelligent. So as an intelligent person, who's postulating that there can be some conditioning, I'm intrigued that you would still feel obligated to give that money back. Well, thanks for the compliment. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure if I can answer the question of like, am I warranted uh, in thinking that like, you know, I need to return the money. Um, As I mentioned earlier, I am a moral realist and I'd like to, explain why, uh, later on, but so basically your question is like, how, how would I justify my desire to return the money? Assuming. Well, if, if, if you are of the opinion that human beings have these moral ideas because of an instinct for survival and personal right. convenience and what we're mistakenly calling a conscience from an entity outside of ourselves is really something we came up with because it's just mutually convenient. The reason I treat you with respect is I want you to treat me with respect. It's not that I see any inherent value in anyone but myself. Well, then if that's true, what could be more convenient to you than getting overchanged $10? And even if your conscience bothers you, if you know that that's just because of your conditioning, where's the moral imperative to bring that money back, especially since you say you would bring the money back, which means you're a decent guy, but where's that moral imperative coming from? Um, so this is an interesting question. And I think what you're getting at is like absent God, there is no kind of lawgiver so to speak. Yeah, um, I, pretty much. I mean, Nietzsche, Nietzsche came as close to being consistent with that viewpoint. See, I, see I'm of the opinion that nobody lives consistently as an atheist. Now you're not mm-hmm. calling yourself an atheist. So I'm not seeing that inconsistency in you. You're, you're talking about being an agnostic and getting very close to, if not actually into to theism. But as we now go back and say, okay, well then what kind of God would he be? It is an interesting discussion where the conscience came from because the belief that the conscience was just made up led Nietzsche to nihilism. 
And he didn't seem real happy with that, but that's where he came up with the idea of the Superman. And we've got to just completely deconstruct our understanding of morality and just build a, a, our own code, knowing full well that we are building. You, you at least got to give the guy some kudos for, for being consistent, because I think most people just say, oh, you know, I don't believe there's any kind of God or I don't or if there is a God, I don't believe he's a good God. And yet we know we should be good. We can't possibly know something that God can't know. We can't possibly be superior to our own creator that's why this thing with the conscience is is so intriguing to me so how, how do you think god serves as kind of like the moral stopping point because it seems to me that like we we still have kind of the issue of explaining why a certain action would be good uh just because god calls it good and i'm not trying to get into the euthyphro dilemma or maybe i kind of am but you know the, the question is uh is something good because God wills it or does God will something because it's good? If God will something because it's good, then that goodness is independent of God. Uh, but if something becomes good because God wills it, then that means, uh, you know, he could will anything arbitrarily as good and it would become good. But then people you know, like William Lane Craig, and I'm, if this isn't your view, correct me, but it seems like the, the majority of Christians I've interacted with adopt a, a position which is kind of like trying to find a way out of that dilemma and um they say well whatever is good is based on like god's nature um but then it still seems like you could ask the question like why is god's nature the good and not something else so okay how, yeah, how that's, a, that's a very fair question that's a very fair question and i would agree i i haven't read that particular argument from william Lane Craig, but I would say it is in God's nature. Now we could say, why is it God's nature? Is God good because he knows that he should be good? The moment God is appealing to something higher, we run into a problem because morals don't float around the universe like alphabet soup. A moral is by definition, a moral standard is by definition, a commentary on how human beings, or if we want to say other entities in the universe, on how they interact. So God just is who he is. He just feels. And if he happened to feel a different way about things, if he didn't happen to feel in ways that we would call good, okay, well then hypothetically, that's the way it could have been. But he is the way he is, and he created us in such a way that we agree with him. You can't possibly go back any farther than God or the first being in the universe, because that would make morality something that exists without sentience and personality. So I would absolutely say it is because it's part of his nature. And yeah, hypothetically, he could have had a bad nature and created us uh, with a, a bad nature, but that's just not the way it happens to be. That would be my response to that. Okay, so that's interesting. So you said we were created in a way where we agree with him and his nature. Um, I have a couple of follow-up questions to that. Would, wouldn't that mean that something like self-sacrifice isn't necessarily good, but it just happens to be good because of the, the universe we find ourselves in with the God we happen to find ourselves with? And then also, I often hear that like our moral intuitions are indicative of uh, God kind of imprinting like the, the moral law on our hearts. But it seems like a lot of people, including myself, have problems with things like in the Old Testament, uh, like God's behavior in the Old Testament, like him flooding the world, him commanding the Israelites to slaughter the Canaanites and things like that. So 
it seems like on one hand, and I'm not trying to overwhelm you with too much to respond to, sorry if I am, but it seems like on the one hand, like Christians want us to take our moral intuitions really seriously. But then like when we object or when our moral intuitions point out problems to us, like with the biblical narratives, then for whatever reason, then we shouldn't trust our moral intuitions. So I don't know if you remember that first question I asked. It was a few minutes yeah, I'm ago. Yeah, keep both of them in mind. And since we're right now talking about the generic God and we haven't yet gotten to the Bible, but I don't want to beg the question either. Let me just briefly say, and I know you expressed interest in coming on and having future discussions where we get more into the Bible, but the Canaanites were very wicked nations that sacrificed babies on the altars. And God actually expressed concern for those innocent children when he told the Israelites to go in and displace them. But that's another whole conversation. Sure. Getting back to your idea that, okay, well then, if God is implanting this moral code, but there's nothing above God telling him to be moral, well, then is this code somehow randomly existing? I, I believe you asked something to that effect. Well, well, no, it's not random because when you get back to God, you're as far back as you can possibly get. God and his personality, and his personality, again, it just is the way it is. But if he created us, then our creation and our interaction in a universe that God created and designed, including our conscience, is certainly not random. Random is the opposite of design. At the moment, we're postulating a God who designed us a certain way. So I, I've often will say to people, they say, well, why did God decide that it's wrong to kill? Why did God decide that it's wrong to steal? I'll say irrelevant. He created you in such a way that you happen to agree with him. And the evidence that you happen to agree with him is found in your conscience. Now, why is there a personality who was already of the conviction that it's wrong to kill and wrong to steal? That's a mystery. But the alternative is a rational impossibility. You, again, you cannot have morals floating around by themselves. Morals can only exist integrated in personality. Stars and dust and chemicals and rocks, they do not think. I know that in Marvel comics, there's rocks that can think, but in the real universe, I know you're a Marvel fan, so I thought I'd throw that in. Oh, yeah. I appreciate yeah go it. ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like you're, you're less making an argument for why like a certain action would really be good and more making the argument that like the fact that we have this kind of internal dialogue or monologue uh, where we feel compelled to act one way over another, you're saying like, it's very unlikely that that would exist on naturalism or on atheism. Am I understanding that I would that say correctly? it's rationally impossible for morals for the, there cannot be universal morals that exist by themselves above some kind of creator where the creator says, okay, gosh, what's my opinion on stealing? What's my opinion on murder? Well, there's these morals above me that tell me it's wrong. Well, who programmed those morals? You can't have a program without a programmer. You can't have information without somebody giving the information. So when we go back to our sentience tells us that we came from sentience. You can't have the person, you can't get the personal from the impersonal. There's got to be an ultimate personality. That personality just happens to be the way he happens to be. And he put into our conscience a code of ethics, or I would say more specifically one code one ethic, and that is to treat other human beings with value and respect. Once again, we could have cultures disagreeing on what it is to have value and respect. 
Uh, I was on the air just uh, last week, I believe, with Ryan. We were talking about this. There are some cultures, particularly in the Middle East, where if they invite you over for dinner and you don't belch, it's, it's considered impolite because you didn't burp in the middle of your meal. In America, we would call it impolite if you did burp. But what I find fascinating is both cultures agree that you should be polite and be yeah. respectful of people. So I would say there's this there's this one moral code that we have. And yeah, it, it's a mystery. It is a mystery that there's this personality that exists that has these convictions, but you can't go beyond him. So since you can't go beyond him and he created us as far as we are concerned, neither we nor our conscience exists randomly. Well, so yeah, I think I agree with a lot of that. Um and I think you did a good job of explaining why, like, there, well, there needs to be some kind of stopping point in order for there to be objective morality at all. And I guess God would kind of be like, you're kind of left with the question, like, what else could possibly serve that, that kind of grounding of it? So I think there was one other question I had. I mean, yeah, well, before you ask your question, yes, let me just say, assuming that there's a God coming to the logical conclusion that there's a God doesn't mean that there isn't a mystery as to why there is a God. How does a being exist eternally? That's a mystery. It's a little more of a mystery within the boundaries of time and space, because in time and space, you have to have a beginning and an ending. And I do find it interesting that in physics now, they're saying things about time and space that the Bible said a long time ago when they talked about God. However, God's existence is still a mystery. Knowing that any alternative to God is illogical and irrational is not the same as saying that it, it isn't still a mystery that we have be, the being of God existing at all. So just to, just to clarify that. Okay. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, it, but it, it, So it seems like we don't want to be able to say that God could have been just some other way. It seems like when we say things like uh, respecting other human beings is good, I don't know. I don't think either of us would feel comfortable saying we think that way, not because it really is good, but just because God, just because that's God's view on it. And then he instilled that. Same oh, no. View in oh, it. I, okay. I think on this, we're in total agreement. I, I lived most of, well, not most of my life, but I lived the first 20 years of my life without any kind of relationship with God, without being a Christian. I did not go through life every time my conscience bothered me saying, because there's a God, this is wrong. No. That's my whole point. We are just subliminally doing those things. We're just naturally reacting to our conscience, or if we disobey our conscience, we're feeling that guilt. So what I'm doing is I'm questioning, we're just reacting as if we know right from wrong. The philosopher, and you're a philosopher or a philosophy student, the philosopher is one that goes a niche beyond that and says, okay, we know there's such a thing as right and wrong. Why do we know that? Where did that knowledge come from? But I agree, people don't go through life saying, oh, this is wrong because God says, eh. now once they ascribe to a certain religion, they might say, okay, the Bible says this is wrong or that is wrong. But their conscience was already telling them those things were wrong before they opened the Bible. I think that makes sense. So, uh, so your view is that um, we, could, we could possibly still have this same kind of experience of a conscience if God didn't exist, but in, in that case, like we wouldn't really have any kind of justification for listening. Well, yeah, I, I wouldn't exactly say that, but let me, you're on, you had the right idea. We could not have a conscience that's, that's accurately conveying a universal morality okay. if there were no God. 
could we have hypothetically, and I hear this all the time, well, couldn't we have just evolved randomly and couldn't we have come up with this idea of the conscience? Once again, getting back to the wolf pack theory, because it's convenient to treat people this way and that. Yeah, we could do that. But the moment we admit that there's no God, then we're admitting that there's no tiebreaker. Like if I walked up to somebody and pulled a pencil out of his hand back when I was in college, if I walked up to somebody and pulled a pencil out of his hand, he could say, excuse me, that's my pencil. I could say, well, it was yours. Now it's mine. I'm not really that mean. I've never did that to anybody, but just for the sake of this story, I could say, well, it was yours. Now it's mine. And if I'm bigger than you, that's not really going to be a problem for me. And he says, well, you shouldn't do that. I said, well, who says so? Well, because it's stealing. Yeah, you're right. It's stealing. Well, stealing is wrong. Who says so? There is no God. We're just a lot of accidents. We're just a lot of slop that randomly evolved to a higher order. In fact, even terms like higher and lower are very relative if we're going to use words like random. As one accident to another, I tell you, I'm of the opinion there was nothing wrong with stealing or taking your pencil. In fact, there's a lot of things that we call wrong. I don't think they're wrong at all. And you're in no position to cast judgment on me because you're just another accident. As one accident to another, I disagree. That is the only consistent conclusion we could come to about right and wrong if there were no God. Now, if somebody wants to say that that's what they believe, fine, but I've never met anybody who lived that way. Not consistently. They can be in the philosophy classroom and they're learning that morality is relative. And then the moment they step outside and they see that somebody swiped their bicycle, what do they do? They cry out in moral indignation. (laughs) They they realize they they don't really feel that way. In fact, this is something that's a point I like to make often. One of the biggest problems people have with religion is religious hypocrisy. And they're right. There's been all kinds of religious hypocrisy. But I like to ask them, are you morally outraged by religious hypocrisy? And they say yes immediately. And then I say, but a moment ago, you told me there's no such thing as morals. So why are you morally outraged? If there's no such thing as morals, then what's wrong with religious hypocrisy? What's wrong with slavery? There's a lot of questions you could ask What the moment we become moral relativists. Yeah, I, I agree. I think moral relative, relativism is very hard to uh, live out. But so in your example where you said, you know, you steal the pencil and someone says uh, that's wrong and you say, why? If they said, well, because God, because God is, I don't know, the moral locus of uh, objective morality or whatever how how does god like what what's the connection there i think someone asked like does might equal right like what why is god's if god is just another subject like he is just another agent why why is his stance on morality like somehow objective and and someone who would ask that kind of question may be fitting at like there there is no possible way to get to an objective morality, because it's ultimately going to rest on some subject. But how, how would you respond to that? Yeah, well, that's an excellent question, Brian. And it gets back again to God's nature. The conscience is a, is a clue, a trail of breadcrumbs that God left us. And if he's telling us to be good and loving, then he is good and loving. Therefore, it would stand to reason that he didn't program this right and wrong into our DNA just for the purpose of saying, look, I'm God and you're just a bunch of pipsqueaks. And if I say stealing is wrong, then stealing is wrong. And I'm going to come down and swatch if you don't do it. Obviously, he has a loving reason for doing it. He says, I am loving and I created beings that I love 
and I want to share the universe with you. I think all God wants for us is to get a kick out of life, but we can't get a kick out of life if we're not treating each other the right way, because if I'm enjoying myself at somebody else's expense, well, then it's not paradise for everybody. So that's how I would respond to that. Okay. So I, I, I can understand why we would want to be loving if God is loving, but my question is more like what makes the loving like uh, an objective good. I know God is like, that is part of God's nature is being all loving and uh, merciful and, and everything like that. But what is it that necessitates that that is actually an objective good? Well, when we're dealing with emotions that are part of our consciousness and sentience, the emotions themselves answer the question. Would you rather live in a world that's loving or would you rather live in a world that's unloving? Is love important to you in your life? Yeah, but that's just my preference. I mean, Okay. Okay. It's your preference. Why is it your preference? Um, I don't know. It's almost like a apology. <laughs> it like beats the heck out of not being loving, right? I mean, right. don't we just know? Don't we just know intuitively that that's the way things ought to be? I'm not saying sure. that's the way things are, but don't we just know intuitively that that's the way things ought to be? Hey, can I uh, can I jump in? Can producer jump sure. in for a second here? I think I think what Brian may also be asking is. Why is it, let's say, God is loving, and God essentially infused his nature into us, and essentially, in a, in a way, programmed, maybe that's a bad word to use, but programmed us to be loving, or programmed us to to follow uh, his nature, which, which we consider good. Like, why is it of necessity that because it comes from God's nature, that it therefore... And, and is programmed into us that it is therefore good. In other words, why can't it just be that's what God nature is? That's how He programmed us. But why does that mean it? Is that is that kind of what you're getting at, Brian? Am I representing yeah, that? You on the head. Okay, I appreciate it. Hey, I try. Yeah. Well, and once again, it, it is what it is. If if you can't go back any farther than God, and God says, "I am loving." I am good. There's no one above me. There's no other God or entity to argue with me about this. So I'm going to create all of you in a way that you happen to agree with me. And by the way, I don't believe he programs us to obey him because that would violate our free will, but he programs us in such a way that we know that's the way to live and we should do it. And then he gives us the free will, but he also says he's going to hold us accountable someday so that good isn't done in vain. And once again, we can say, well, okay, but why do things have to be this way? And my response would be irrelevant. You were created in such a way that you happen to agree. I don't say that lightly when I say the way things happen to be. I had a student say to me one time, why one God? Why can't there be many gods in the universe? And my response was, there's nothing wrong with multiple gods in the universe as a concept. It's just that that's not the way things happen to be. If we happen to live in a universe that had many gods, that would be fine. But we don't. We happen to live in a universe that has one God. So if you can't go beyond God, there's no one to argue the opinion. When I'm arguing with somebody about the pencil, it's two accidents saying there's no God. Then we can say, okay, we've reached a stalemate. But if we're presupposing that there's a creator who put that standard inside of us and we can't go beyond him, then that is the right way to live because our creator told us it was the right way to live. 
And there's no judge beyond our creator out in the cosmos that would say contrary. And our feelings were created in such a way that we happen to agree with that. We see that the world is better if we're loving. We see that we're happier, not only being loved, but able to love others. Yeah, that sounds a lot like divine command theory. Um, I know there's there's different views on like God's relationship to morality, but we're probably kind of at an impasse because it sounds like we've kind of gone back to that point a few times now. Um, so I didn't know if there was other things we could talk about. Like I kind of have some notes here. Um, if there's something else you'd like to bring up, you can. And then I was also going to ask you when, when you decided after following William Lane Craig and doing an apologetics blog yourself, you decided you could no longer call yourself a Christian. What were some yeah. of the arguments that swayed you back that way? But by all means, why don't you first bring up anything else that you wanted to bring up? Well, so that, that was pretty much what I was going to bring up was uh, kind of what led me out of Christianity uh, initially was, you know, you talked about Christian hypocrisy that definitely played some role. Uh, I don't, I don't deny that there was no kind of emotion that, that played some role. I like to tell myself that it, it wasn't that large of a role, but it definitely played, if it didn't play a part in like me deconverting completely, it, it kind of opened the doors, I guess, uh, for me, uh, seeing seeing it as a possibility that Christianity isn't true. And then once that door opened, I was kind of open to learning about problems that atheists had with the Bible and uh, the problem of evil. Um, in particular, the problem of animal suffering uh, was a pretty big problem for me. It, it's not as much of a problem as it is today, or it, uh, excuse me, it's not, a, not as much of a problem for me today as it used to be. But things like that. So Christian hypocrisy kind of opened the door for me to think, well, maybe Christianity isn't true. And then, you know, I would I would hear arguments from evil that were just really kind of powerful. And you can say, well, they were emotion emotional. But I think if you're going to say that, like any complaint and a non-believer could have based on the problem of evil, uh, it's just emotional then I I could also say the same about like many religious experiences, you know, like you can't trust this because it's based on emotion, not to get too far into the weeds with that particular point, but. um, I respect respect the fact that it was an emotional thing. Let's go back to that door. You were concerned that you saw hypocrisy in the church that raised questions about the problem of evil that raised questions about the character of God it seems like we're going back once again to a conviction in your conscience that if there were a God, he would have to be good as you and your conscience understand that. Indeed, that's thinking for a moment that maybe he wasn't because of the way Christians or church leaders, et cetera, were behaving was one of the first things that caused you to question Christianity. And granted, there's other things now, but it sounds like that was the first opening. And it seems like that goes back again to the nature of God and how our own conscience is telling us that if there were a God, what kind of God he should be, he should be good. He should be loving because if you yeah, didn't I think God that... had to be good or loving, I, I would wonder why any hypocrisy in Christianity would have necessarily bothered you. Right. Yeah. If I didn't think, well, so that's, that's a good point. Uh, if I didn't think God needed to be loving and caring, 
I might still think such a God exists, uh, but I, I wouldn't find him worthy of worship. Uh, like yeah, if, which get, which gets back right. again to saying whatever made God good and loving, obviously you were created in such a way that you agree he should be that way. And you're glad he is that way. And indeed, you don't think it's worth your while to serve a God who wouldn't be that way. Right. Yeah. So I guess, I guess the Christian hypocrisy thing, I, you know, my line of thinking was these people seem to sincerely believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. So they should have the Holy spirit present within them, but just like the moral failings that I would like regularly run into, like they would make fun of people behind their back. You know, the people couldn't defend themselves. They would gossip, mock people, judge people based on, you know, superficial characteristics. So stuff like that. And I know that's fairly mild. Uh, compared. I, to- I, I entirely understand Brian and I don't blame you at all for feeling that way. And let me say, that means you're a lot closer and have much more in common with Jesus than you would think, because Jesus preached against and railed against religious hypocrisy often. He was actually crucified because the religious hypocrites of his day that had power did not want him saying the things about their hypocrisy that he was saying. The Sermon on the Mount, which was his very first recorded sermon, in, right in that sermon, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. I don't mean to get into a big scripture quote, but this was no. key because he's saying there are going to be people who call themselves my followers. If they're calling him Lord, they're obviously Christian. And he says, these people are not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And some of them are going to stand before God and say, I prophesied, I cast out demons, I did all kinds of glorious religious works. And God says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. Now that word to know in Greek had to do with an intimate knowledge. What he's saying is, I never had a relationship with you. Obviously, he's God. He knew who they were. He knew their names. He knew their address. He created them. But I find it interesting that that early, what person who's about to start a ministry and wants a following stands up and says, boy, great crowd tonight. Let me just say, many of you who claim to be my followers, I'm going to personally turn away on Judgment Day and send to hell. That doesn't seem too likely. It says something about the integrity of the man's convictions, but all to say that I I think your objection to religious hypocrisy is very understandable. I was raised Jewish. My own people have been murdered in the name of Christianity. When people tried to share the gospel with me, those were the first words that came out of my mouth. Hey, my people have been called Christ killers. What about the pogroms? What about the Inquisition? What about the Holocaust? A lot of those things were done in the name of Christianity, but the guy that was sharing with me had the wisdom to say something that was actually very simple and very obvious, but nobody had ever said it that way before. He says that the people that go around calling the Jews Christ killers and do these evil things, they're not really Christians. They, they may call themselves Christians. They are not really followers of Jesus. They're people that Jesus himself will turn away. So only to say that I have great empathy for, for your plight and where you were at, that would have turned me off too. And it also turns Jesus off. And that's, that's just another thing to consider. Yeah, I think those are great points. Um, and yeah, the Christian hypocrisy for me today isn't really like a big obstacle for me accepting Christianity because I, I do agree that like it could just be the case that there are very few authentic Christians. And well, actually, there are, Jesus, said, Jesus said, "Wide and easy is the way to destruction. And right, narrow is the road to, to life." Now that's a sad 
statement. <laughs> I wish that I wish he hadn't said that, but he did. So again, you're on you're on to a lot of things, and you've got a lot of con- conclusions that Jesus himself shared with us. I did have a question when you mentioned um, the the passage where Jesus says, "Depart from me, um, you never knew me." The people that stand before Jesus in that passage are saying things like. Uh, we cast out demons in your name. And basically they're saying like, we perform miracles like on the ground uh, of your divinity, basically. And so my question is like, how could someone, I guess, believe in Jesus enough to go around performing miracles in his name, but not actually have like an, an authentic relationship with Jesus? Like if I were going around saying, you know, flee demons in the name of Jesus and I witnessed it happen, I'm at least going to have like a head knowledge that Jesus is genuinely the Messiah, but you're saying like, I, maybe yeah, you're saying. Yeah. Like, yeah. Excellent. Excellent question, Brian. Excellent question. And there is an answer. And that is that some people do honestly believe that there's a Jesus who died on the cross, but they get fascinated with the power of it. I believe there are two different kinds of relationships that we can have with the spirit of God, a temporary probationary one where people are kind of trying it out, and then the permanent one, uh, which the Bible would call being born again, where we enter into that genuine relationship. And in that probationary one, people may draw upon the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's also true that there are people who maybe are very insincere, but are just using the name of Jesus, and we're told that Satan can do counterfeit miracles too. But even if we're talking about somebody who was sincerely following Jesus, and these people standing before him on Judgment Day seem to have really believed in him, it is possible to experience some of God's power. And instead of letting the power of his Holy Spirit lead us to love and humility where it should lead us, it instead leads us to this obsession with power. Getting back to science fiction for a moment, I think this was something that George Lucas illustrated brilliantly with the Jedi starting out with good intentions and then getting seduced by the dark side of the force. Not that I'm trying to change the religion here, but I think he was at least onto something that goes on inside of people. Human beings get very obsessed with power, and I think that's where that comes from. Okay. Yeah, I can agree that human beings would get obsessed with power. I guess I, I I find it hard to wrap my head around like why God would bestow that kind of power to someone he knows is going to abuse it. Because then, like, he's a gentleman, because he's hoping that if people are at least willing to taste of his power and taste of a relationship with him, that they could be persuaded to enter into it in fullness. However, he's still going to lead that up to them. God doesn't clobber people on the heads tactlessly nearly as much as Christian evangelists do. God leaves a lot of things up to people's free will. He is a gentleman at the end of the day. When you said uh, Satan can do counterfeit miracles, yes. um, made me think of the passage where Jesus said, like a house, a house cannot be divided. Um, against what, itself. Against itself, yeah, it can't stand. So that seems to kind of contradict the idea that Satan can do counterfeit miracles, at least of the kind Jesus was doing. And if people are going out and saying like, we cast out demons in your name. That seems to be like a miracle of the same kind of nature that Jesus would want performed. I don't know if my question is. Yeah, no, sense, no, but- it's, it's a good question that, that one of the gospel accounts are several that talk about this, but one of them is, is Matthew chapter 12. And in the context getting back to the hypocrisy, and that was the hypocrisy that was concerning Jesus again. 
the religious leaders kept saying to Jesus, if you're really the Messiah, if you're really from God, then do a miracle. And then he finally did one. They go, oh, well, you did that by the power of Satan. Well, he wasn't denying that Satan can do a counterfeit miracle. That goes all the way back to Pharaoh's court where Pharaoh's magicians did some of the same miracles Moses did. But then eventually God through Moses did some things that they couldn't do. So their miracles eventually short circuit. But the problem here was the disingenuous motives. And that's why he's saying, look, gentlemen, when you're asking me sincerely to show you who I am, well, fine. I can't make all these claims and not give you evidence of who I am. But she just asked for a sign. I just gave you one and you still will not accept it. You're coming up with excuses. This is a very dangerous road to go down. In fact, he called that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. He's saying this is something that you knew or at least strongly suspected was coming from the Spirit of God. But you don't want to believe that I am who I am because I'm somebody who calls you out and I call you out in front of the people that are following you. I'm saying don't follow after the Pharisees. They're hypocrites. So they were very personally motivated to not want to believe Jesus was who he claimed to be. And even in the face of the tremendous evidence, such as a miracle, they weren't going to do it. So that was Jesus' main concern there. But he wasn't denying that in another context, Satan can come along and and do a counterfeit miracle because Satan is a deceiver. He does come in the name of God. He does try to pull people away from God. Could Satan perform the kind of miracle where someone casts out demons. I mean, it's, that sounds like Jesus is saying uh, miracles of that kind, like would be against, I guess, God's, or excuse me, would be against Satan. Yeah, we, we don't have enough information, but it certainly seems that Jesus is saying there, here's at least one thing that Satan's not going to do. He's not going to cast a demon out of somebody. Now, there were people that would cast out demons and sometimes be based on certain words, particularly if you're talking about the blood of the cross, which is the instrument of their defeat, the demons have to obey that and come out. But if these people don't really have a good relationship with God, they can run into trouble. There's a case in the book of Acts where some guys came along and they cast out a demon, but they didn't really have a relationship with Jesus. And that person that they were trying to cast the demon out of just completely overpowered them. So yeah, it's probably, I say probably because I wish we had more information about it. It's probably fair to say that one thing Satan doesn't counterfeit is the casting out of a demon. And and by the way, that was one of the things that he had done in that miracle in Matthew 12. He had not only healed a person, but he cast out the demon that was causing their infirmity at the same time. Hey, guys, we're we're at about an hour right now. And that's probably yeah. all our audience. Wants how the do. how the time flies. So but this was fascinating. If if Brian wanted to, I'd love to chat with him again. I, very oh, interesting, you. very likable guy, very open guy. So. I appreciate it, Bob. I appreciate your time. And I definitely enjoy the conversation with you as well. And uh, yeah, I would love to do it again in the future. So just let me know what your schedule looks like and we'll make something happen. I would be honored. That would be wonderful. And Ryan, thank you for arranging this event. Our our mutual friend, Ryan, who put this together. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Glad I could bring you guys together for sure. So, okay, I guess we're going to, I guess we're going to cut it off now at to be continued future conversations. So great to have the exchange. Uh, between Bob and Brian. So we'll do this again on the Bob Siegel Show. Thank you guys for joining us. We'll see you tomorrow. The Bob Siegel Show podcast is a production of Bob Siegel and Cross Global Media. Visit us online and subscribe to the show at cgmradio.com slash bob. Bob.